welcome to episode 12 of the Counterforce podcast. I'm your host, Aug Stone. We were just listening to the gorgeous Phantoms from the new Say Lulu album, Immortelle. The album and that song in particular are among my favorites of this year. Miranda and Electra and I had a really good conversation about making the album, the cinematic and sonic influences and personal experiences behind it. I've been a fan since Say Lulu's first album, Lucid Dreaming, which has some excellent synth-pop songs on it. But while Lucid Dreaming was much more a collection of great songs, Immortelle is an artistic vision fully realized. Its sound is much more lush, seeming to emerge from the twin sisters' dream world. They also do a trip-hoppy version of Under the Milky Way, the song written by their parents Steve Kilby of The Church and Karen Janssen of Pink Champagne. It's a really cool take on the song, and stylistically it fits in perfectly with the album. Any of these songs would be a perfect fit for a James Bond film, so let's hope Say Lulu get to score one one day. Now let's get to the interview, shall we? Can you introduce yourselves so everyone knows your voices? Miranda, Electra, we have very similar voices, so I wish you all the best in deciphering deciphering who's who. So tell me about when you first fell in love with music. I don't remember a particular moment, but I think it was like different stages of like it being just being there and being like a constant thing from to being something that I like found for myself and like found my own relationship to artists and to music um, when I was like eight or nine. Before then, it was just like something that was obvious, like it was always there and something we always talked about and something we always had on in the background and was a part of our lives in so many ways. And I think as I got a bit older and I got my own like, you know, music class, got my own Walkman and all those things, I started to be able to like form my own like private relationship with music, whether it was like the Jackson 5 or I don't know what I listened to, but whatever music was what I was listening to. And I got, got to have my own little intimate relationship. And I think that's when I like really fell in love with like that bond and like safety that you feel using music as some form of therapy or like a place where you can go when you when you when you need to be alone and when you need you know comfort yeah in the early teens like 11 12 when did you start making music yourself i mean we were making music when we were kids and we were in singing groups and acapella groups and whatnot i've played violin and guitar and like we've all, we've just swapped around on instrument stuff. Never, never well though. Never well. We were always just like boring. Never yeah, well, moving next. on to next thing. We're kind of like um, a bit restless. But I, I, I kept doing singing throughout my whole from the age of like eight till eighteen. But I never thought that it was going to be something that I was going to do professionally. Both because I didn't want to, because I didn't want to be like my parents. But secondly, because um, I was like, oh, it's a long shot, and I, you know, I should do something else or whatever. Um, but then when we were 19, 20, we, we started gravitating towards it anyway. And we did a few songs with our uncle, recorded a few songs. And then one thing led to another. And then someone heard that, those songs that we did. And then we started making more. And, you know, so it sort of, sort of just started, like, bubbling up. And then Say Lulu really happened really quickly at the back end of that. And then since, since then, we've been doing it full time. Full time. Great. Tell me about your mother. I mean, I'm a big fan of your father's work, but I don't know much. I know some Pink Champagne songs, but that's about it. Our mother is a fantastic person and human and is very intuitively creative and um, started by teaching herself how to play guitar so she could be in a punk band. 
So she they kind of they kind of all learned their instruments as they went along together. Um, and the that we're gonna do it. We're gonna it? do it. We need to, we need to be we need, we need to say something. We have a political message. We need to take space amongst the bourgeoisie, but also amongst all like dudes. all the dudes. So I think they're they're forming a band was a political reaction and sort of counteraction uh, towards the the what was going on rather than like them opposite to dad who was like who was always a musician musician from the early teens like sitting by himself playing writing writing, 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 and writing. Doing this so they they all of them so mom is more of an intuitive player in that way mm-hmm. and um, learned how taught herself how to play guitar being this band was in the band for like four years released a bunch of albums and toured everywhere and was like one of the biggest punk bands in Sweden, Sweden and Scandinavia and then um, she met that her and dad met on tour when they were on tour and they both the bands were on tour and they met and then they fell in love and mom moved to Australia and formed a new band there uh, called Curious Yellow. The dad produced. The dad produced a lot of the music, which I think is really beautiful. And I've actually we we've just resurfaced a few of her old demos that she wrote for for Curious Yellow. Um, that we are amazing, very immortal vibes. Actually, gotta say, like super but, but trippy, way more ambient. Way more ambient, like super trippy, sort of spoken word, like super, this mortal coil. Yeah, this mortal coil vibes. So but yeah, then she had. But then and then, her, and then her and dad wrote under the Milky Way together on a piano believe it or not, even though it's like full on guitar song. And then dad did it, did the song with the church and then that song got big. And then mom had us two years later and she didn't do music anymore. She kind of chose us over. Yeah. Music. And then she's been doing like writing and yoga poetry. and poetry and stuff since, since then. And now she's gone back into music. So she's like the last year. She called us. She was like, I've, I bought a MIDI keyboard. I'm getting into, I'm getting into a logic uh, I'm gonna start. I'm she bought an electric guitar. She bought an electric guitar. She gave they they gave uh, she gave me hers like a, a long time ago. So I have the nice one, and now she bought a new. Yeah, new she's like I'm one. getting. I'm learning Logic, and then she was here actually in LA a few weeks ago, and she started recording her demos here in our studio. Yeah, that sounds amazing. A long way to It's never too late. No, and it's a, you know she took it to she took it to twenty year hiatus. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So you said our message isn't a message. Our message is a feeling. And you've mm-hmm. had these Instagram posts lately about stop making sense and mm-hmm. how defining yourselves ourselves is limiting and that we're, we're mm-hmm. much bigger than all that. And the new mm-hmm. album and the videos seems like they're communications from a much bigger sort of dream space. Mm-hmm. Do you have intimate relationships with your dreams? Is that where a lot of stuff comes from? Or what is your relationship with your dreams? Our relationships with our dreams. First of all, uh, I just want to say that uh, very. I, I like your sort of summary of the videos and the music and the Instagram posts because I think that's kind of the point I think allowing we want to create something big and you can step into the room and you can be you can take part in anything that's going on in the room whether it's the music or the artwork and I think the definition letting go of the definitions and the and the oversimplifications and over explanations because I think it's you create such as a much stronger bond with with art and music and all these things when you allow it to have have your own resonate with you on your level with whatever you want it to mean to you and so my dreams, our dreams are are pretty similar. We, ha- I think, our dreams are super abstract and are all about feeling. And we had the same recurring nightmare as children, which we still can't explain in words. It's just a feeling. But when we when we um, use our hands to, to to show the shape of the scary thing in the dream, we both make the same shape. It's like an energy field and like a force field mm. and colors and colors. And I think that's kind and of scenes that that's how that. That's kind of how we um, worked with 
the visuals and the production because we always explain things rather than being technical we kind of explain the feeling and if we want to explain what kind of chords we want we don't play them we kind of explain a situation between human two human beings and then the chords come after that more more rather than you know this minor and the same major, yeah and then you know what I mean, you know what I mean? like this song with it yeah wow do you keep dream journals we have in phases but my dreams i i'm i have to say for some some phases i'm so exhausted from dreaming that i don't even feel like rested. it feels like i've lived a double life during the night in the morning i'm like whoa did that happen or did it not happen okay i've dreamt dreams scary or, or weird or or like foreshadowing dreams about all these things and now i feel like when i wake up it's like you're like whoa i'm bringing that with me into the day um and i remember my dreams but yeah our uncles kept a dream journal for like however long uh but we haven't, we haven't in hindsight it. it says more about your life than you think it does in yeah. the moment mm. i yeah. really do believe in foreshadowing too uh is this the same uncle uh, you're talking no, about this is not we have we have, we have both, two musical uncles. two musical uncles who both do music and have stu- home studios and um just generally in, like inspiring nerds, nerds who uh, have helped us out during the years yeah so let's talk a bit more about the creative process mm-hmm. when you describe a feeling to someone to put into sound i i take it the people you're working with get that mm-hmm. like that's why i work with them that's like that's the that's the nature of the of the beast. Of no, but that's the nature of the why we're we're content with with our crew that we found because up until now it's been sort of like an uphill battle to try to try to find people who are on that wavelength with you and have this, tap into the same awareness. And I think with this album we found people who mu- who tap, not only had the same tapped into our awareness but also musically uh, trans- could translate that awareness into into chord progressions or sounds or whatever. Um, that has the same reference and has same sort of also have same sort of reference point and who is inspired and like jolted by the same types of movements in music um, yeah uh, I read in your interview with HMV that the album was originally mm-hmm. going to be called Seven and mm-hmm. that were, there were superstitious reasons for that mm-hmm. can you tell me about those well election so seven the word seven is probably like the most superstitious number and like religiously connected number there is just seven deadly sins, seventh heaven, seven days of the week, what, what, seven, wonders. seven wonders of the world, etc., etc. And then we were born on the seventh. And then we were like looking into like, because originally we were like, oh, let's just as a, as a starting point have like seven deadly sins inform the seven songs of the album, or at least visually inform them or something like that. And then obviously we realized that was way too limiting and like not a good idea and just too hard. Um, but we, as we were researching, oh my God, as we're talking about this, Look at this. Oh, wow. Seven. <laughs> Their keyboard says seven. <laughs> yeah. We we found um, the opera or the, the sung, opera, sung ballet uh, called The Seven Deadly Sins of the Bourgeoisie by Bertolt Brecht. And we were just like going through that and looking at a fil- like a film version of it and reading it. And um, in it, there's Anna One and Anna Two, two sisters who are traveling through um, the seven, dead- seven different cities in America. And they are met by seven different deadly sins, obviously. And that was published on the 7th of June, our birthday in, 19- in the 40s. So there was like all these like superstitious things like connecting, like numerology, like things connecting. And we were like, wow. Like, and we were at that point staying like in the, in the... We were staying in our friend's house up in Beechwood. And it was like, we were like, it was a lot of like rituals and yeah, manifestations. And, and we were like, this, everything means, this means the album should be called Seven. 
Um, but that's why we have seven songs on the record. Wow. And that's why we have Anna, the, the song Anna is called Anna. Yeah, so tell me how, how you found the name Immortel. Then. When we'd written Anna and we'd written Golden Child, we were writing another song that um, and didn't end up didn't end up finishing. But for some reason we were looking at different flowers and and colors and something to describe this girl in the in the song and we found Immortel the, the name we're just like we're keeping that and we're like that's the album mm. we just like didn't we researched re- researched it for like 10 minutes and then we're like it's we're keeping it it's the name of the album bam and then from then it's on in the movie it's in the movie it's in the movie it's in the movie uh so we just decided and that from there on from then on it was just like that it was so that was so the name so were you already in LA or did you move to LA to make the record specifically we were kind of like going back and forth kind of being like wherever we needed to be we just liked every time we came here we liked the feeling we liked the the vibe and then when we met the guys that we made the record with we it was solidified like we're moving all all of it you know our whole operation here so yes start when we started making the record that's when we started being here like almost 100 percent of the time man got a place and everything and now we're stuck can't ever go back I don't think we'll ever go back. I don't. I don't know not where. Where go back? Where? Yeah, Sweden. you know what I mean. Uh, not Sweden, at least. Not Sweden. I don't think we're gonna go to Australia to stay. I mean, I'd love to live in Australia, but it's just so far away. Yeah, Australia is like a dr- the dream. That's the thing. Australia is like the most dreamy place to live and, and to be and to exist. Right. Yeah, it's just you just don't you don't feel like connected a, to the rest of the world. It's like another angle and everything. Things are very cinematic in the world of Say Lulu. Mm-hmm. And I mean, obviously in LA you have Hollywood, but the videos you're putting out much more international feel. I see Bergman in them, and I don't think it's just the Swedish connection that's in my head. I mean, is that true for you? Always, yeah. always. Okay. There's always a bit of Bergman when you do anything. I think. Yeah. Whether especially, well, when we do I think especially because um, with to be us being two women, it's like the, the the visual placements of like faces together are so Bergman like how he structurally and like visually put like put people in relationship to each other mm-hmm. so I think even for photos when we take photos we always are look, looking at like per, the persona or even cries and whispers like how they're placed together holding each other or against or like this mm-hmm. and it's like and even though he was very you know misogynist <laughs> he I think all directors from that time were, yeah but he was like very much so and very a bit of a dictator in, in many ways but his depiction of women in film in film is so good it's so true yeah so real and so i think the mood and i think the mood mo- the mood between them um and the the spookiness the eeriness i think something we've always really wanted to carry with us yeah mm. definitely so you are correct uh but yeah i think in international feel well, i mean we are european yeah, we are our, our aesthetic sense is definitely more european than american so i think it and the people we worked with on making the film and and the artwork are all Europeans, so. But we are, we're, we're cross-breeded. We're Australian, we're Swedish. We live in the USA. We live, the, we live in the US. Our stepmom, growing up, she was American. Uh, our nana's English and our dad's English, kind of. So it's always been like a mix of a lot of different things mm. being thrown around. I got Jodorowsky from the Golden Child video. Yeah. Are you? Yeah. Is that, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We tried not to, to go too far in in, 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 in Yodorovsky. Not we didn't want to be too we didn't want to be too pastiche. Yeah, pastiche. We didn't want to like like do do it too much, but we wanted to be hints of it. Yeah, the moods. 
and like obviously like our our positions in the the whore. we didn't have a naked kid with us unfortunately but <laughs> yeah what other films were you watching while you were making the record we were watching everything from in the mood for love at Wong Kar Wai Wong Kar Wai um to Bergman to Tarkovsky to Bertolucci uh Lynch the classics. Uh, the classics. We're also watching a lot, lot of Bond. Lot of yeah, Bond. The bad Bonds and the good Bonds. The bad Bond movies and the good Bond movies. Some erotic thrillers. Anything with uh, Sharon Stone. Okay. Um, Kim Basinger. Kim Basinger. Who else? What else did we watch? We watched Crouching T- Tiger, Hidden Dragon. There's a mix. Yeah. But the cinematic things. Yes. In Bombastic all di- cinematic. In, in all directions. Yeah. We watched... Um, Fahrenheit. Yeah. Citizen Kane. Anything really. We try to just we try to just go through because we were we were so into scores. The more like kind of spooky, like Anna, you know, um, eyes wide shut feeling. Like we just yeah yeah. Any we watch or we would watch like parts of anything that Lalo Schifrin or Annie Marcone or Bernard, Bernard Herrmann had scored. So we would like go in and, and watch. And then the boys have these the steal the scores. And then the boys have found a way to get isolated stems to a lot of old recordings. So we could hear how they'd recorded a lot of the strings and the, a lot of the tracks from yeah. old things. So we could try and hear and how they'd done it. And so we could find, find what approach, how we were gonna record all the strings and oh, stuff nice. like that. Do you know Marconi wrote it, but it's sung by Mina, the Italian singer, yeah. Say Telefonando? When she said goes for four octaves. She goes, and then she goes, she jumps like four, four or five octaves. Like she's like in the same song, insane, insanest range I've ever heard. That's one of my favorite songs of all time. And I haven't listened to that in ages. It's so funny. You would mention so funny. This girl is this singer from Australia called Izzy. She's in a band called The Preachers. I don't know if you've heard of them. She, when she heard Immortelle the first time, she sent us that song and said she felt she, she, it reminded her for some reason of that song. Wow. Funny. She's, and she's, 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 she's Italian. Yeah. I'm always amazed that he just wrote it for some, a television show. Mm-hmm. And yet it's one of the most perfect songs I've ever heard. I know. Such a good song. You mentioned the good bonds and the bad bonds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can you say some more about that? Well, look, Pierce Brosnan, that was all the bad bonds. The only, I, I think the, the, the Sean Connery and the, the Sean Connery bonds and the new bonds. And Daniel Craig And bond. Daniel Craig bonds are the best bonds. What's your favorite Bond film? So hard to say. I like, I like, um, I like Goldfinger. Mm. You, you only live, you, you only, only live twice. twice. Um, and, and then I think, honestly, the new, I didn't, that Quantum Casino, Casino you like Casino Royale. Casino Royale is for me a, per, Casino a perfect Casino Bond movie. Uh, I love the, the I love also the genesis of Bond. Like that's where Bond becomes Bond. Yeah, with the, what's the name? West Berlin. West Berlin. West Berlin uh, which means evening, right? Mm-hmm. Vesper means evening or something like that. Yeah, but I didn't like Quantum of Solace. No, I, I don't know. It was very. It was very. It was very like. Well, I don't think Spectre was especially the score <laughs> was bad. But, so, what's your favorite Bond theme? I have to say, "You Only Live Twice" mm-hmm. is probably the best one. Okay, if, if I can say something about uh, the Pierce Brosnan age, is that there the were songs some... were so freaking random. Yeah, the songs were so random. Like and pop, audio, like audio slave, and then garbage did one. Oh, Cheryl yeah. Crow did one. 
And I, I can like Madonna's. I'm gonna so die another day. It's not my time to go. I like that one. But I prefer her her soundtrack to Austin Powers. Madonna's. Beautiful stranger. I think I, yeah, and then did you hear Radiohead's? Oh, the, the basically Radiohead were commissioned to make the score for uh, Spectre. Oh, really? But then they it was rejected, and they got Sam Smith to do it instead. Brightens on the wall. I know you're like anyway. Um, so go in. You can go, you can search it. A Spectre by Radiohead. Um, it's so, so good. Good. We the string arrangements are insane, insane. And then and then they chose. They thought it was too weird, so they chose Sam Smith instead. I love that you released a manifesto film. How did that mm-hmm. come about? When we were writing the record, we finished writing the record. We were like looking at a bunch of different movements, uh, whether it was the Dogma group, like Lars von Trier's film. Group in the eighties, nineties, or uh, or the Dadaist movement, or and all these different movements, like the surrealist movement, the surrealist movement, the feminist manifesto, the scum, the scum manifesto, manifesto of, uh, basically like the power of like writing, formulating in a poetic way your belief, belief, and that the, and you're shining, kind of your leading star, your shining star, star, yeah, and allowing that to, if you're going to explain anything, for that to explain it, but I think. We didn't want it to be like, oh, this is exactly what we want to do. We, these are our goals or this, these are our points. We just wanted it to be like more of a side poetry to go along with what Immortelle means to us. Okay. And we put that in. We wanted that to be part of the film and to be sort of the, the sort of backbone of the film and the artwork and how it all ties together. You mentioned you've been ma- making songs with the video in mind. Mm-hmm. How does that affect the writing process? We, it affected in the sense that I think when we've come up with a song and we've put some tentative lyrics and melodies and everything in place, and then we start thinking about the visuals and the story of the visual, and then we will go back and reapproach the lyrics to fit the energy more, to fit the, the storyline, the plot. And now, obviously, the plot of um, the Immortal Manifesto is extremely loose and like vague, but and there's the Golden Child one as well. But we wanted just visually for the words that we're using to connect to what you're seeing. So I think with Golden Child, we wanted to feel more deserty, desert-y, <laughs> and we restructured those lyrics to fit with a, with a visual concept. And we did, so with, we did so with Anna as well and a few other things. So that's kind of how we had that in mind. But I think we also had it in mind in the sense of what we were watching as we were writing the music and writing everything we had, sort of mood boards of what we wanted to do visually. So that was also a way for it to go into the... To the making, yeah. I saw that Anna Domino was li- listed as an inspiration. Yeah, for, I love her stuff. Yeah, we made, we make we love making playlists. So, what other non-soundtrack stuff were you listening to while you were making them? We were listening to obvious, like obvious. We weren't listening to it so much by the end, but I think some like more from a production standpoint of like, especially drums. We were listening to Portishead and Massive to Attack. Massive Attack. And then moving on, we to get more of like a warm electronic vibe, we went in, we listened a lot to Air and to Charlotte Gansberg, the Beck produced Charlotte Gansberg stuff. Oh, and also the new Charlotte Gansberg stuff, just for like production uh, synthy elements. From a vocal standpoint, we, we, we went through so much different stuff just to find the tones that we wanted. So I think all over the record, we've, we've gone with completely different vocal tones and production choices. Um, so that's more of a mix of all those things. There's some Portishead elements of like super filtered. There's more super hi-fi clear stuff. 
there's more like us layering those two things together. It's so different from lucid dreaming. At what point did you figure out the direction you wanted to go in? We, after lucid dreaming, we started making more like sort of hot, like sort of harder, um, like electronic stuff. It's hard, a bit hard to explain even what, what that means, but like we wanted to go in more of like a gorilla's direction uh, after lucid dreaming. And we made like almost a full album of worth of that stuff with some other people. But I think after that, we were like, Ugh. it just felt like it didn't feel very gratifying and it didn't or feel genuine. or genuine. It just felt like we were like, oh, this sounds cool. We'll just do this. And we wrote, wrote a bunch of songs that were good, but like I didn't feel like an emotional connection to it. And so what happened was we, I started, we started thinking of things that I've always wanted to do and things, especially the string part of myself, the score part of myself. And we on accident met Trent, who then ended up producing a record. We, we met. And we had a night together. We were just talking about music and all the things we always wanted to do. And those two things totally coincided. And he was like, wait, I have this one piano part that I've written. Can I please play it to you? And I was like, yeah, sure, sure. And he played us Anna uh, piano. And like a string idea as well. And we were like, okay, we're gonna Yeah, all those things. We were like, okay. That was so bond. Felt so bond and it also felt so central, felt so it felt like I could just feel it resonate like in my chest. And we were like, okay, after that, after that, we're like, fuck it, we're making a whole record that sounds like this. And then that's where that's it. Yeah. Chance. Was Anna the first song? Yeah. We wrote it that day. As soon as we heard him play those, we wrote the song that night and that day yeah and were you already thinking of the seven deadly sins thing or did that uh yeah we were we had we had already come up with the seven deadly sins because that was kind of at the back end of the other electronic stuff we've been doing mm-hmm. so the seven the idea carried over uh, and we had an idea about anna but we also had, had an idea about the seven deadly sins so i think that's all carried over and then we like end up tying up the knot here in la when we came up with um it, like it all kind of came together in some weird way at the end Golden Child, the line, they'll shame you when you flirt, but they'll hate it when you frown, is such a good encapsulation mm-hmm. of so much which that's wrong with how men think women should be. That idea is pervasive throughout the record. We wrote that song for our little sisters because it really is like, and for ourselves and for anyone who wants to, who you know, listens to it, I guess. But I think for us, it's like, that really is the double standard of everything. You're always in the wrong somehow. If you if you flirt, you're this. If you if you don't flirt and if you're, if you're frowning, then then you're boring. And I think that that's. And if you if you have if you have sex, then you're a slut. And if you don't, you're frigid. So whatever you choose, it's kind of like. Or if you're beautiful, you're stupid. And if you're ugly, you're smart. But then you're ugly, and no one wants to be like. It's like whatever you do, there's always you're always wrong, and you always end up losing somehow. And I think kind of that's the on a grander on a bigger scale a macro scale i think that's part of the immortal manifesto like these definitions around what you are can are put us in prison can put us in prisons that we don't always see and end up defining ourselves and we define ourselves out of these roles that we think i'm this kind, kind of we have we have to play and so that's kind of my the line in the in golden child is probably is about how about how literal we get with with that concept but i think that's something that we all suffer from not only men, women but i think men as well we're stuck in these in these roles and definitions of ourselves and i think it allows us doesn't always allow us to grow um and also be several things at once and like be multi as multi-dimensional as we, could, as we could be and allow ourselves to be how is it different for women in sweden and australia 
than in the US. I think mostly on a political level, I think we've come so much further in how in just in like how we legislate around in Sweden, not Australia so much, but in Sweden about how we legislate around feminism and female rights and women's rights. And we've just been doing it for way longer. Equal pushing towards equal pay, um, parental leave, parental leave, free like free abortion, free healthcare, free daycare for children, more women in the in, in the workplace in in higher positions, free free education, all those things. And I think all those. I think having free health healthcare, free education, free daycare. All those things pushes, women out, pushes women out into the workforce and allows allows women to take the space that they need. And if men get the same same amount of parental leave as women, then men who want to stay home with their kids, you know, can if they want to, you know. So I think it, it needs to come. I mean, obviously, it's about societal it's structures. It's about social change, but, but I think I think so. There's nothing that that pushes social change more than an acceptance does than actual legislation and like. It gets people used to it quicker. Yeah, it also sends out a signal about how we how we how we value people. Affirmative action. Yeah, also. we believe in affirmative action. Yeah, and affirm. We really believe in affirmative action. So, is it a major transition? Being, well, I guess, LA is more, not, not quite all of America. <laughs> I think what, what's what's struck us the most, just working with mostly men here in LA and and just all our male friends here, is that. There is the sweetest guys ever, but sometimes the things would, that would come out of their mouths when they were talking about girls, I was just like, whoa, stop and listen to what you're saying right now. And they've just like started checking themselves and they've started realizing like all this, like just like joking around it, that it also is harmful. is harmful and contributes to these prisons we were talking about. And I was like, she's crazy. I'm like, wait, why is she crazy? But she's like, she's like, oh, she's so angry. I'm like, but why is she angry? What did you do? Did is she's probably frustrated because you X, Y, and Z. Like instead of this like flippant like joke, oh she's joke, so annoying, she's so crazy. Or, jokes about prostitution, about this, and about the and strippers and about bodies and, and, and just just like very like locker locker room chapter. Yeah. That is so harmful. That they think is that they think is is harmless, but it's so harmful because it's it's like a systematic way of speaking. And just it's just in general, like jokes, also not only about women, but about about other people from other uh, from other other, other background backgrounds in other countries and stuff like that. Things that they just like, I'm not, I'm not, I don't. But I was just joking. I'm saying, but those things are are hurtful. So just those kind of things that we would never get away with really saying in Sweden in the same way. People are just a bit more like conscious. I think. Yeah, I think that's the biggest difference. I'm I'm struck by people's unawareness here. And I'm not very conscious about. But that's all got to do with education. That's got to do with education, and it's I think got to do with private education and having public slash private. I think if it's it so depends on where you come from and stuff like that. But but I think also the thing with LA is like we're so hidden. We work. We're independent artists doing our own thing in our own studio, tucked away. We're not a part of like society. We're not. We don't have nine to five jobs at workplace and getting paid from a from an employer and getting benefits or not getting benefits. So like we're not really you know, experiencing America to its fullest and its worst or its best. So we're kind of like still living our Swedish hub, but here. Mm. Okay. We're, we're, we're very privileged. Yeah. All love to me then. We wrote that one for each other. It was like, not for each other, but we wrote it. It was about us too and about our relationship and about family and about how it's this, the relationship is so, so complex because it really is someone that you hate so much, but you also love so much. And that, and where the frustration comes from. And that's what the song is about, her and me. 
you have siblings that are also twins themselves or have siblings mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. what's that dynamic like it's so fun that we have them we have, I have the best they're the best we have a, we have mini me's i have my mini me and she has her mini me it's funny to see also how how the dynamics they're 19 how their dynamics like play out again like we are it's like us all over again but like i see how they their arguments and their c conflicts are like similar to ours and the roles that you take on in a two in like a twosome. A twosome. They're so fun. Yeah. The best. Do they make music as well? One of them plays bass and had a band, had a had like a prog band when she was a teenager. It was so uh, cute. So cute. <laughs> uh, I don't know, she's she's a graphic she's a graphic designer now. But um I'm trying we're trying to get we were like, if you just get really good at good on the bass, you can join our band and we can take you away and we can you can live with us forever. She really She's like, too, like, no. Like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Limbo. A Russian tango about, that's our the art of seduction. The art of seduction. We wanted it to be like James Bond at the ball in Russia. Like Anna Karenina meets, yeah. meets, meets, yeah. Bond. meets Bond. Excellent. So tell me about deciding to cover Under the Milky Way. I mean, stylistically, it fits in with the rest of the record. When did that enter into the it, it was it wasn't something that was planned it accidentally happened because we just we were just talking about the song and then trent who produced the record started playing like alternative chords that were way more immortal version of uh, and then i started singing a melody that was similar to dad's but different and then we just it was such a vibe and then i was like we can't do that and then the more we started playing around with it the more we're like it sounds pretty awesome and then Trent wrote the, the amazing bridge for it and after that we were sold yeah it was also the the bridge was, became was so emotive and so emotional and really felt like some sort of like release emotional release and so we felt like we just had to put the put the song on the record and we had to finish it and we had to do it even though it felt weird it just felt like it was like I, it was like an it just had to happen Nice. And it feels like it's a good, it's a good breaking, it's like a good breaking point for us with our history in a way. My favorite musical moment of 2017 actually was seeing you guys join your dad for the unguarded moment at the Fonda. Oh that God, <laughs> we, were, we were so, so drunk. drunk and that was so unplanned. We were just standing behind the stage congratulating them on the show and they're like, come, I think, I think um, Ian, Ian, who, who was, who, um, Doing the guitar, Marge's. doing Marty's part, uh, guitar. Um, he he's like, come, come on, come on stage, let's do it. We were like, we don't even know this song. He's like, it's rock and roll. We were like, we don't really know the lyrics. We're he's like, so come on, finding inspiration. And then and I was like, what are the other lyrics? What are the other lyrics? I keep singing the same thing over and over yeah. again. And then, but then Peter didn't know, and Peter got and Peter looked, looked at us like pissed. He's like, why are you here? Why are they? Um, and then all the fans were like, wait, why? Can we? We want to hear the song in its full, in the right way. Yeah. I loved but it. <laughs> it was fun. It's funny. It lent itself to female vocals, like, really well. It's, just, it's like, that, that is just Not because it's so low. He's like, so hard, finding inspiration. So it's like, I knew you'd find me dying. So it's kind of nice with some, some eerie and stuff on top. So my favorite song on the record is Phantoms. You're not alone. That seems to be, be, that the, general to be the general consensus. The melody um, is just gorgeous, and I'm a sucker for the major key anyway. So, yeah, yeah. it's it's our baroque pop, baroque um, beetle pop. Yeah, our baroque beetle pop. We wanted the tr drums to be the Ringo kind of like, 
yeah, and even but even the the bridge going into the, into the key change is like a day in the life reference with the, all the strings like going completely ham. But yeah, it's we we um, the harpsichord moment felt very warranted for some reason. Um, and the melodies were very the melodies easy to write. so beautiful and it's the same chord throughout the whole song yeah so it's kind of like easy to write I still feel you and that's mimicking my body close. it's really nice it was so that was such a, it felt like an easy one to write mm-hmm. yeah but we basically Trent played um that melody on on the piano um, and sang along with it and we sang along with it and immediately it felt like the song was about mourning and about about losing someone, and about like this hopeful yet completely devastating, devastating moment. And so, like and just when that, that when you start hoping that you'll see them again, yeah. Somehow. And just when like a few months before that, our not even a few months, it was like a few weeks before that, our grandfather passed away, and we and our grandmother who had, they'd been married forty years was like you know alone for the first time, shocked, in shocked. And she was still talking about him like he was there. Yeah, she was like she just he was like she was still talking about him and her his things were still in the apartment and and um, we wrote a song about from her vantage point like a more like uh, dramatized version of her point of view like like he's still there and she's his all of all of his things are still there his records are still there and she's just like somehow letting go and hoping that he's going to come back and his favorite his he loved uh, Miles Davis. And uh, listening to jazz, so that's why we had we had a little like uh, a lyric in there, blue notes playing on repeat because at his kind of blue, yeah, yeah. Blue notes and that people on people were knocking on the door trying to talk to her and 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 asking for him for like for mail, and she was getting letters to him, and he wasn't there, and she was just she was so overwhelmed. And I guess it's like also I think because I actually read a really nice thing about this. Nick Cave wrote um, a fan wrote to him and and asked about how he's dealing with the death death of his son. They were and also I, twins. As there was, there were also twins, and um, he wrote a really beautiful sort of letter about death and about life after death, and I think, and about phantoms and about ghosts or spirits or whatever. And I think our our song is kind of like a similar take on and how, how he's saying it's like you have you just when someone passes away you just hope that they're still there. Mm. Like you have you you your mind starts working on all these other levels of feeling them there and and feeling their their existence and your awareness just completely changes and opens up and you do start believing in things you didn't believe in before because you have to. Like people can't just disappear. Mm. Like they have to be somewhere. So I think that's kind of what the song in a more pop pop suit is about. Mm. And that idea leads really nicely to the last song, Immortal. Immortal, yeah. yeah. Immortelle was actually the last song that we wrote. We weren't going to have a title track. Actually, then, so actually, Immortelle was originally called Master of Nothing, but it's about. Well, how would you describe what it's about? Don't you know? But it's no, more. No, your song. No, Immortelle, Immortelle is kind of like encapsulating a little bit what the manifesto is about. It's about that kind of the hidden, the hidden, the hidden leaders, the hidden like leadership that yeah. women have provided for thousands and thousands of years. That behind every great great man stood a great woman doing doing them all the emotional labor and doing. I guess we would do the the verses are a micro level of a relationship of a man and a woman, or like me and a, and a lover. Me feeling that the only time where he puts his guard down, or the only time where he's actually being truthful and completely ser- serene and uh, honest, is just about is when he's sleeping or just when he wakes up or just before he goes to bed. And I, I, 
all of a sudden I feel I don't feel threatened by him or he doesn't feel threatened by me he can just be himself and then and this, the Napoleon's gone with the wind and he admits defeat that he's that he's surrendering to love more or less and then and then the chorus we're singing more on a macro level that you know every time he stumbles and falls he comes back to bed and, and that's where he gets finds his consolation with me but then when he goes out to face the world, he's pretending like he's all alone, this like strong warrior. Kind and of also that men are like, I did this, I did this on my own. But like, no, I, probably behind you was like your mother, your sister, your daughter. Like, mm. And I think that's kind of what the song encapsulates, the micro level, which is in an intimate relationship where you feel like they go out into the world and they're all this like pompous, strong person. But like they're nothing really, can hurt me. nothing can hurt me really. You know that when, little, when little shit boy. comes, shit is a fan, they come to you and they're like, oh. And mm. then the chorus is kind of the macro of that, which is fucking society. I think mm. where men, women picking up the pieces of men, and also that it will always societal, societal pieces. Yeah, the war. Or when you fade war, into darkness, will save you. Will save you, immortal. Mm. We're undying. Yeah, that's lovely. So you've got plans for a baby sister for the record? I read. Yeah, well, we don't know if it's going to be. Maybe it's going to be lots of little sisters because we. I don't know if we're going to do a whole album. We kind of want to. We want kind of maybe want to do a little like maybe maybe, maybe a little sister cousin like a little yeah. EP. Now that we've found a way of making music that feels right to us, we're, we're just and we have this. We have a home studio now. Like it's not really home studio. It's like a we have a house, and in one of the in the biggest living room, we have a real a studio. big a big stu- a proper big studio set up with like we have live drums and grand piano. And we have everything that we could possibly need. Really, we don't have an echo chamber. We don't have an echo chamber. We can maybe make we can make one in the toilet. Um, mm-hmm. but I think now we have like a setup and like a way of doing things that are really smooth. So I think now it's going to be. In, during the immortal process, we were just like we were just finding our way and like so experimenting. And now I think we've found the formula for how we want to work, um, not how we want to write, but how we want to work in the process. And I think now it's going to be easier to just make things continuously, and not have to be like, you know, it doesn't be Ben Hur every time, you know. Cool. And you've got the two gigs coming up at the end of the month in LA, yeah. and New York. We are rehearsing. Um, yeah, we're rehearsing and trying to get our live shtick back on. Just been hard. We haven't done that for like three years. So getting your band together, we, we are getting all the musicians who played on the record already. So it's not going to be like this massive, hard process. But I think we need to get back in shape. Will there be more gigs after those? I mean, we're going to start with those two and see um, how, we feel, how we feel about them and how we feel like. Because I think what we've taken with us from this record is like, we want to be really conscious about why we do things and the quality of the things we do Not rather than the amount the and like doing them for the sake because we should. And so I think yeah, that's what happens so easy. Happens so easily. You should, you should do this, you should do that. Oh, that's how people do it. But why? And then, you're, then you're on this weird tour and you're like playing under pretty shitty circumstances and... You you're don't. Not feeling you're not feeling inspired. You're, you're not. You're doing a especially great job, and you don't have the. You don't have the tools to do what you really want to be doing. You, um, you can't make new music. You can't make new music and all those things. So I think for us, it's like when the shows make sense and you have the time to prepare and make them as good as possible, then we want to do them. But the the prospect of just like slapping slapping around is and not throwing things out. Yeah, I don't want to do. Which maybe sounds a bit like spoiled. But we've—I feel like we've paid our live dues. Um, we we played the past we, seven years, uh, so we played so we played so much. hundreds and hundreds of gigs. I think we we're trying to be a bit more selective with our energy. I mean, imagine, imagine how many gigs Dad has played. Yeah, and he keeps on playing them too. They're a rock band too, so it's yeah. different. I mean, I, I, it's crazy though. He's six, sixty-five, yeah. and he's still still doing it at this level. It's like 
he's I'm impressed with stamina. He had kids late though, so I guess we're all keeping him young. So my last question is always, say you had stolen a space shuttle and you were flying mm -hmm. it directly into the sun. What would you want to be listening to? Really? The last song you ever hear? I don't know. Just because it'd be like, yeah. I'm gonna fucking do this. I am the sun and the air of a shyness that is criminally vulgar. Because, yeah. We probably loved that song when we were, when we were little. When and we we'd like, be, and it'd be like, you you're like, fuck yeah. Fuck I'm fucking I'm going to bang. Yeah. I am human and I need to be loved. <laughs> that was great. I love how they kept breaking out into song, especially getting to hear them sing bits of Mina's Say Telefonando and How Soon Is Now. I'm psyched to see them play in Brooklyn on November 30th at the Park Church Co-op, and they're playing in LA on November 28th at the Moroccan Lounge. I saw Say Lulu in Boston on the Lucid Dreaming Tour, and it was fantastic. I'd had a really long day, but as soon as they started, the music got me dancing and completely changed my mood. It'll be interesting to hear how those old songs fit in stylistically with the new ones. I'll be posting some of the Lucid Dreaming songs and more in the show notes for this episode at thecounterforce.net. I've always loved their song Julian, and lately Electrify has been on my stereo a couple times a day. I was going to close out the show with Julian, but since Immortel is such a piece unto its own, I'm going to leave you with its leadoff track, Anna. Please subscribe to The Counterforce if you dig what you're hearing, and I'll be back soon with some more awesome interviews. Here's Anna.